as I am looking around and I feel like eh, it makes sense that T.S. Eliot and Eliot Alderson have this deep connection. Uh, but I feel like, okay, well, that's it. That's good. That's great. Whatever. Um, I'm not sure I understand why that is, but, um, but okay. Um, now let's move on to the rest of the show. Um, or, you know, this can't be anything bigger than that. I'm, I looked at the, the letters of T.S. Eliot and I found one that blew me away. And this was from the poet Ezra Pound, who Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot worked together and they published each other's work and so on. And this letter is about Ezra Pound commiserating with Eliot about being asked for a certain number of poems and delivering those poems, but then only getting paid for a few of those poems. And the person who had commissioned those poems was a guy named Michael Roberts. And uh, Ezra Pound is writing and complaining about Michael Roberts in what we'll call uh, kind of a, a country hick accent right now. And uh, he says at this point, I seize your Aristotelic sense of unity as defective. And now it's almost like texting language the way it goes, but uh, <laughs> the way he's typing it here. But he says, but unless I said, Ezra Pound writes, but unless I said to any, and before he's called, he says to Michael Roberts, and then he says, uh, Michael, <clears throat> Michael Roberts, and then he says, Mr. Roberts, and then this line goes, but unless I said to Mr. Robot that he could have nine poems for the price of five, he was putting over a fast one. And I look up and there's nobody to, to, to point this to, and I'm, I'm shocked and I'm stunned. There in 1936, in this letter from May 4th, 1936, is Ezra Pound writing to T.S. Eliot, who we are seeing as Eliot Alderson, unless I said to Mr. Robot that he could have nine, in all caps, nine poems for the price of five, in other words, nine, five, five, nine, Mr. Robot, five, nine, it's there in 1936, and this is the first place I can find the words Mr. and Robot put together anywhere, any place, anytime, is Ezra Pound talking to T.S. Eliot. I have to say, as a willing audience member here, you've blown my mind, and, you know, um, I'm ready to open my heart to you. <laughs> uh, 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 Q title. Hallelujah. My name is Maxfield, and this is my father, and he called himself Mud about <laughs> ten minutes ago, um, because... Uh, we were fighting to um, get through a clean take of the preamble here. Um, My name is Mr. Roberts. His real name is neither Mud nor Mr. <laughs> Roberts. My real name is Israel Pound. 
Oh, I'm going to cut that. Don't that, worry. That would bring out a lot, that would bring up a lot of problems. If, <laughs> if you want to find one model out of out of anybody we could discuss over the course of this show, I yeah. think um I think Ezra Pound would be the worst one. <laughs> We're doing a fun uh, improv comedy show together. Um, and here we would like. Uh, for a certain amount of time each week um, to reveal the entire truth of Mr. Robot and uh, all art and the modernist movement and all literature and all pop culture and hopefully enlighten you and uh, uplift our consciousness to um, a degree hitherto unknown in human civilization. Oh, good God, that was fantastic. I, yeah. I really hope we can deliver on that. I mean, <laughs> I, th- I, think it's, I think it's likely. But um, <laughs> um, This is a show about Mr. Robot. This is a show about, about Mr. Robot and uh, going beyond Ultra on Mr. Robot. Yeah. We, we have all the stuff is the thing because... You know, I've never been to New York City, and it's a terrible shame. I've heard great things about New York City. Oh, my God. We're going to have to add that to our list of things to do for the show. I don't know. Maybe I'll, Maybe I should know it more. They say Immanuel Kant never traveled because he thought uh, he could get a greater understanding of uh, places like uh, the United Kingdom and Italy from uh, his little travel accounts and uh, cultural treatises that he would read and at one point um he was about to leave germany for france um and after he got about maybe 20 leagues in a stagecoach he started to feel sick and then he immediately went back home (laughs) well you know what they say emmanuel kant was a real pissant I, I wasn't in the Catholic boarding school that uh, that you went to. The one where they where they showed uh, Monty Python all day long. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we've got we've got the we got the goods on on Immanuel Kant and Mr. Robot. I, after the finale, which explained everything, I felt there was still more to be revealed, even before I saw the interview with Sam Esmail, where he said there still was something big. And I I felt there was something deep underlying the show that hadn't been revealed yet. And I had no idea what it was, but I just had that strong feeling like Elliot has, and it's maybe a bit trite to say, uh, that that first little monologue that he gives where he talks about the uh, that itch in his brain where he can't let good be enough. There's always something behind it. And uh, I've gotten that quote entirely wrong, which shows you how much I know the show. And uh, yeah, we should we should cancel this whole yeah, thing. We should, it's done. Okay, all together. Wrap it up, boys. Um, we were both very unsatisfied. We were both very unsatisfied. Um, we love the show. That's what I was going to ask: Is did you feel did did you feel that there was more to learn, 
or did you feel like I was uh, going, you know, going down a dead end? We were in this for, I'd say, about five years um, yeah. straight of uh, a good portion of our headspace being filled up with Mr. Robot. Right. I'd say, you know, at this point, a quarter of my life has been... <laughs> has been based upon uh, an academic credo of Mr. Robot. I was very obsessed um, with you and uh, with all the Redditors and with all the people on Twitter and likewise with the little theories that were being made and trying to unwrap each plot point um, as they started to roll out and then somewhere midway through the third season deciding, uh, maybe even through the second season, deciding that I didn't so much care about the nitty-gritty and that I was just very excited by the uh, by the sweep um, and, and the movement and uh, the style of the show um, and in trying to understand it on, you know, the basis of, you know, the emotional progression of each character, where each person starts and where each person ends up. Um, the real important part, and I mean that, yeah. Yeah, and even considering that, um, when I had seen the season finale, it, it's very good. I say that, I mean the series finale. When I had seen the series finale, right, it's very good, and a lot of people were very happy with it. Um, and I took issue with the strange robotic Freudian that they put in front of us um, to explain the contents of the show and the relations between Mastermind and the other personalities. Mm -hmm. And then just the supposed unwrapping of Elliot Alderson's whole life, which I felt couldn't really be described in the context that it was being given to us, as if either the information was there to begin with and we were already experiencing it or that the fake Krista's explanation is only a fraction of a truth that we're supposed to come to on our own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, here's the thing too. Uh, I think we watched the first or the second, it was the first or second episode when you turned to me and said, is this a fight club deal? <laughs> and, and I went, Oh, damn you. <laughs> Cause it, yeah, it was, it was, I remember you didn't want to accept it for a little bit. There was a need for both you and me at different, uh, different sequences. You had done the same thing with, um, in season two, you were talking to me about, um, the people who figured Elliot was in prison. And right. Yeah. Right. You had told that to me while oh. he was still in his supposed mother's house, <laughs> and and I knew at heart that that was true in a sense of, you know, if you look at the concrete details, that is what is happening. Right. It, right. Um. But, but I was in a totally fan, my own totally fantastical world of wanting to experience the uh, relative perceptual conditions that have been set up for us. Right, right. And that that was the best thing about the reveals is that uh, when you really get into it, the reveal is exciting and it deepens your understanding of, 
of what's happening, of what's happening inside of Elliot and the other people and so on. But everything leading up to it was not just a trick being played on us. It was, it, it had its own meaning in that part that we didn't understand. And the part that was hidden was hidden from us because we're understanding first what is shown to us on one level that uh, Mr. Robot is this homeless guy who uh, who recruits Elliot and he's this old hacker and uh, you know who who wants to wants to destroy the world and blow things up and he's a madman and uh, uh, borderline abusive and so on and uh, then when the reveal comes about him, it's not just a oh wow they're identical twins uh, kind of uh, evil twin reveal. It's something where everything that happened before was still true, and now we now have a new truth that we're adding those things together and and coming up with something new and greater and deeper and more more interesting. Yeah, that's the poignancy, for instance, of uh, the mom's house uh, a prison twist. Yeah, which is that you can't you can't look at the story from the perspective of you know, assuming from the beginning that Elliot is in prison because right. the importance to the evolution of the story um, depends upon your being able to understand how Elliot is able to perceive federal prison as being reasonably close in experience to mm-hmm. living with his mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that that brings you to... Uh, again, the yet deeper truth of his reality, um, which is the essence of his relationship with his family. Now, we had all these curiosities, and I was in upstate New York. Yes. I still have never been to New York City. Keeping me on track. Go ahead. Um, I had no interest in going to New York City, um, and I suppose I was just a little late on the bandwagon because just about as I was about to move back to California... It was Christmas time, no less, mm-hmm. and there was a heavy layer of snow outside. There was a mix of aspens and blue spruces on the hillside, and there were 10-foot-tall icicles you know, hanging beside my window at that point. Mm. And you had called me. You hadn't texted me. Uh, there's no history of any text conversation about this except my very <laughs> shocked reaction. Yeah. You had called me because somebody had told you something that drew you on, you know, the longest thread that we've had about Mr. Robot yet. Yeah, yeah. And I had I had mostly stopped searching. I, I was never I was never really interested in solving Mr. Robot. I got drawn into it socially. I, I went online to talk to people uh, about just little details, and suddenly we're we're talking about different parts of it, and it became fun to just puzzle it out with other people. Uh, but I didn't have a deep emotional need to um, to find it because the show itself is answering those emotional needs that I have from the show, and and, and watching it, understanding the characters, or trying to. And trying to understand what's going on and, and enjoying and feeling those things. But it was fun to do it socially with people. And one of these people online, after 
after I think a lot of the discussion had worked itself out because we felt like we'd felt like what we were going to figure out about Mr. Robot, even the, the deeper meanings, we felt like, well, we probably had pretty much figured it out. A lot of people thinking about it. And out of the blue, this person said, well, I think Elliot Alderson's name came from T.S. Eliot, the poet. But they didn't have anything more to say about it on that. I said, well, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? Where, you know, give me some evidence for that. Give me some reason you think that's true. They had nothing. And I... You, you know, did what you do. I went straight to Wikipedia. To, you became furious. To debunk it. Yeah. Like, like c- come on, you know. Um I had I had I had searched on Elliot's name before because in episode two, Vera says, "Hey, you never Googled your name. You got to do that." Yeah, and you already debunked it. Um, in my mind, yes. It, you know, there's a red herring, which is that every time you look up Elliot, that's what comes up first. He is Elliot, and yeah. it's a terrible, annoying thing. And we're just trying to figure out about Mister Robot. Just, and there's this huge, bulge-eyed, you know, goofy American British face looking back at you. Yes, yes, exactly. And and I'd found another meaning that I thought was true that led me down other paths, which were fun and interesting and enlightening. Um, but this time I looked at it again now with the whole series behind me and a lot of thinking having been done about it. And as I read the Wikipedia page on T.S. Eliot, I realized this is Eliot Alderson. And it was driving me nuts. So then I'm looking at other parts to, to to prove that this isn't true. And the more I looked, the more I looked at his life, at his poetry, at quotes from him about the way he lived and thought, the more I realized that the character of Elliot Alderson had to be based on T.S. Eliot. Not to mention that they look alike. You owned Eliot. <laughs> his whole life belonged to you that's right in three minutes I destroyed him I destroyed a man's life so when you heard that when, when I told you that what was your what was your emotional reaction that this letter had been sent that has the words Mr. Robot and 5-9 in it? Well, we only have a text record of um, me making a few exasperated and very tired comments somewhere around midnight. <laughs> um, because I had gotten into the shower and I had eaten dinner and I had been trying to read something. Um, and I was very distracted and I was very annoyed. Um, and <laughs> I had realized that, uh, you had put a shovel in the next hole that I was going to dig, um, for the remaining few seasons of my life. <laughs> and hence, um, 10 months have passed mm-hmm. and I'm sitting here with you right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've laid a terrible curse on me. Uh, I cannot help but look at the show now. 
um, as being, you know, what we knew before as already a, a terrible amalgamate of of illusions right. to um, various. But it's kind of cinema first, right? Yeah, cinema, television, um, uh, to Tolstoy and Nabokov, um, to E.E. E. Cummings. Books, music, paintings. Yes, it's all across the board. Um, you see people on uh, message boards filling up pages and pages of recommended readings from Mr. Robot um, just based on uh, how many wayward references you see in every line. Right, just, just and these are things from the twentieth century. It's from the twenty first century. These are new things, yeah. or, relatively, or, or uh, you know, uh, we we don't we aren't even scratching the surface of T. S. Eliot. To, and you're, you've still got years of things you could you could look at. What you've opened up essentially is that, evidently, and to the extent that this may be true for um, all art, is a question. But what you've opened up is that Mr. Robot isn't a commentary on the past hundred years or so. It isn't a, it isn't really a commentary on the post-World War I world. Um, it isn't a commentary on information age and all these other things. It is a capstone set upon 2,600 years <laughs> of, of humanity's cultural development. There, um, it, it finds its roots spiritually in immemorial tradition um, that T.S. Eliot was obsessed with. Yeah. Um, and so much of the time, that's all I can think about now. Now, let's say, let's put a pin in it, you know, between 1910 to 1930. Um, so, uh, kind of the crack of the Great War um, uh, and the space in between the two wars. Um, T.S. Eliot, um, was a, a quickly rising, um, poetic figure. And he talks about his life and his work during that time, um, and describes the, uh, the disappointment that he had with uh, the poetic establishment at that time. Um, he felt that in many regards, um, uh, that English work hadn't much progressed beyond um, beyond the Romantic movement, which had come at the be uh, the beginning of the nineteenth century. Right. Um, that the things that Wordsworth and Tennyson and Keats and others were doing um, was only being matched by. Uh, such newer poets as Yeats um, and Baudelaire. Um, but even then, um, they, uh, while, um, while they were expressing ideas that were fresh to the Western world um, in their poetry, um, they were still working within the boundaries of a more strict, a more rigorous style um, that had come from uh, this credo uh, that was set out, you know, since, let's say, the beginning of the 17th century, um, that they were still working heavily with um, iambic pentameter and the sonnets 
um, and these basic rhyme schemes. Right. So he understood, so he understood these things and he had a fluency with them yeah. and he felt that it could be done better, but he also felt that, it, that those things shouldn't be discarded. Right. So is there a, like in terms of, of what he felt of the people who were just kind of mimicking the classic romantic style, which he loved those poems and, um, and he loved these older works, but he felt that there were modern poets and writers who were just essentially mimicking those styles and not bringing new life into them while they were. Uh, and so they were stuck in the idea that this is how you do poetry in this old fashioned romantic thing. So he still loved that. But at the same time, he says, if we're going to honor and pay tribute to those things, we've got to do it in a modern way. Yeah. So what is what like today now, 21st century, what's something where people are, are doing that they're they're kind of adhering to the form but not the spirit of an art form. Can you think of anything like that? I'm just, I, that was just, that question hit me right now. One could say Sin City. Ah! Yes, piece of trash, garbage thing. Oh, whoa. Okay, you're going to start fires here right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like... You're a spy kids kind of guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, God, Roberto Robert Rodriguez, so wonderful. And so aping style. Robert Rodriguez, that's a perfect example, actually, because I love him. I adore him. Um, and what he's mostly doing is uh, mimicking the things that he loves. He's not really, well, in the context, let's say, of Spy Kids, he's brought something new by bringing an old form to uh, a new audience. And uh, and I like that, but that isn't even in question. So I think that's a great example, though, of, of a way that Robert Rodriguez movies for a more adult or let's say sophisticated audience are less successful because most of what he's doing are things that he's picked up from older forms, but he's not really advanced them. Yeah. The viewpoint that, um, that Elliot had, um, on contemporary English poetry, um, resembles much the same, um, uh, fatigue that I think um, any sort of artistic filmmaker, you know, would experience upon seeing, you know, a good portion of the establishment dominated by um, some multimedia organization um, that is, you know, bent upon um, uh, creating stories um, and visual styles by committee, essentially. Um, and drawing only upon, you know, what has been immediately successful to kind of produce a hackneyed emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. You can take, for instance, um, one of the earliest and most popular um, hits in the American uh, magazine Poetry. Um, and if you look through um, the anthologies at that time, there isn't much that's up to the caliber and sweep of what Elliot was developing with Proof Rock in the Wasteland. This one was done by a New Jersey poet, Joyce Kilmer. It's called Trees. It was very popular at the time. I think that I shall never see <laughs> a poem lovely as That's a tree. A tree. <laughs> a tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast. A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. <laughs> 
a tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, <laughs> who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. It's a sentiment, uh, for, for certain. Um, it's a cute little series of couplets. It's very sing-song, and it still has this um, flowery and, at this point, derivative uh, romantic style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... What a what a fantastic example! Oh my God, how what a fantastic example! Yes, that is because I remember from my childhood that that was the mocked poem, <laughs> you know, and and so that poem was very old at the time, but at the same time, it was I, I think there's a I think there's a Looney Tunes where it's where it's made fun of. I think it's made fun of in the I, Little Rascals. I had heard it before. It's it, it has become a. United States into institution at this point. Um, right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the Pledge of Allegiance of of bad poems. Um, yeah. And we can say, compare that to, uh, I would say, uh, Morning at the Window by T.S. Eliot. They are rattling breakfast plates in basement kitchens, and along the trampled edges of the street I am aware of the damp souls of housemaids sprouting despondently at area gates. The brown waves of fog toss up to me twisted faces from the bottom of the street and tear from a passerby with muddy skirts an aimless smile that hovers in the air and vanishes along the level of the roofs. And his yeah. image is finished. Yeah. Um, or if you wanted to draw upon... His contemporary, Ezra Pound, um, uh, the apparition um, of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bough, which was um, what was that? His uh, his vision of the subway platform, the the metro, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and where do where do uh, Ezra Pound and Elliot first meet? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot, I, oh my God, I'm going to have to cut this, but I will be saying this all through this, <clears throat> is Mr. Robot is not Mr. Robot to me anymore. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, when you had said that, I realized when you laughed that you had just told yourself the greatest joke <laughs> that you've heard in a long, long time. Um, but when you first said that, I thought to myself, no, I don't know where they first met. <laughs> yeah but yeah. um but here's what i mean to say elliot you know he brought his melancholy into world war one um <laughs> but it's not as if he was created by world war one I. I think he was a person essentially with the right outlook at the right time which is a you know what seemed to him to be a deeply modern anxiety and melancholy in his dealings with, you know, the the urbanity and chaos that surrounded him. It absolutely was. Um, it was the end of the world that he knew, and and the world that he had been raised on. That he thought he was going to be going into, um, and all the people around him as well. So if for. It, it's true that it didn't directly traumatize him in that way, but uh, there is no T.S. Eliot without 
the, the, that as we know him without without World War One, from my point of view. So, leading up to the Great War, Eliot had already published a series of poems, but achieved the most success um, with the song of G. Alfred Prufrock, which you know made, made a big splash at the time and clearly set him at the top of. British poets coming out. He was he was an up and coming. And uh, this is this is the poem that blew away Ezra Pound. Mm-hmm. And Ezra Pound's the one who promoted him in that way. So all of this is so deeply tied together. Go ahead. Yeah. And so in the meantime, um, Elliot was clearly going through a number of troubles in his personal life. He had a pathetic and tumultuous um, marriage um, between him and a woman, Vivian, who were both at that point in their life justifiably um, suffering a number of aristocratic apoplexies. Um, (laughs) They were socially sick. Both of them were suffering nervous breakdowns on the regular, um, and they were very mad at each other. And uh, people were making theories about Eliot's possible um, homosexuality or impotence. (laughs) Um, Just to give you some perspective on the state of affairs. And for a certain amount of time, following uh, his beginning the writing of The Wasteland, um, his his landmark poem and uh, possibly the most prominent poem of the 20th century, he had been ordered a rest cure by his doctor and spent uh, three months at various seaside resorts to set apart from his days of uh, furious writing and researching and um, his days of commuting uh, back and forth to um, the financial district in London where he was working as a bank teller. With his pal Lloyd. And so in all, it took him... Uh, somewhere around six years to finish what ended up being, uh, some say, a 433-line poem. Some say it's a 434-line poem. I I think it's uh, important to add here, too, that the poem is 100 years old and that there are, I would say, millions of words written about it by... Um, it is, if you were to put aside Ulysses, it is... Essentially, the center of um, of the academic uh, uh, critical English establishment. When you try to go into um, understanding what it means, not just to one personally, but uh, um, what it means in the context of what it is, and academically what it means, and and even I say academically, that's really not the most important part. It's, it's even understanding it emotionally requires um, going to a different level with it. And um, there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things out there uh, explaining the wasteland, and none of them are, are all. None of them are the same. Uh, there are a lot of the same elements, but they all have a different view as to what it is, and they all have different reasons to support what it is. And I think it's important to understand that these few hundred lines have been studied and interpreted and felt by millions of people 
over over the last hundred years, and it still holds up, and it still feels. Some of the language feels a little old, but the poem feels modern. Yeah, no, it's it's thoroughly you know not only contemporary in that it's drawing upon its immediate surroundings in a in a beautiful way, finding the um, sort of objective correlative um, to use Eliot's language, um, finding. Um, kind of the definite object and the progression of the real world around him that will produce a certain essence or a certain feeling. Mm-hmm. He he has a great sense of um, of what is new and immortal in style, and thereby um, has managed to live and live. Um, people will still be puzzling out. Uh, what the hell this 400-year-old poem was supposed to mean when he first made it. 400? Oh, 300 years in, from In now. the theoretical future. Yeah, right. right. The, the theoretical future that theoretically exists. Right. That was also the focus of, say, uh, Ezra Pound's and Wyndham Lewis's vorticism, <laughs> in which they... Um, Plotted to blow up the gas line. In a somewhat science fantasy way, they would talk about how the shocks of of inspiration and of pure essence in art um, can recover the past, um, uh, make you fully aware in the present, and also give you the prescience of the future. And that in that way you are experiencing all of time at once through a supreme work of art. Those were the sort of ideas that are you wait are you saying they went back to the future? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on <laughs> just what are you trying to say by that <laughs> and if we were going to talk about Mr. Robot, which I think theoretically we might even though it's an improv comedy podcast yes um that Time travel is a theme in Mr. Robot, and it is mm-hmm. so much of a theme that everybody uh, prior to the end um, had essentially decided for themselves that Washington Township must be some sort of time machine or timeline machine um, to some degree. You're right. There were thousands of people who were deeply invested in the idea that there would be Time travel. I've never seen a theory that's close to complete, and I don't think I could make one on my own just based on the content of the show that isn't just, you know, making comparisons to Twin Peaks, but I won't talk about that. <laughs> the All of their talk of um, their kind of cutesy Mandela effect illusions, um, uh, White Rose's obsession with supposedly recovering a you know an ideal timeline um and a lost past You're the obsession with time yes yes and mr robot is told in a a pretty definite you know non chronology um you are kind of operating at the speed of Elliot's mind for the most part even though it kind of appears that you're going through mr robot uh through a number of different viewpoints and at some points experiencing it in a more dramatic or epic way as opposed to, say, a lyric way. Mm-hmm. While you have these brief interludes, especially in 
season one and season three where you're traveling between what appear to be the uninterrupted um, viewpoints of other characters, uh, such as Angela and Francisco Shaw and others. And Darlene in particular. And Darlene and then later Gideon. Um, yeah, yeah, right. That there are certain portals that can only be opened up by Elliot's awareness of them. For instance... Did you say Elliot or Tarmesius? We will get there. <laughs> we don't end up finding out about Irving until the beginning of season three, when he's already come to take Elliot to the hospital. Um, we're not allowed to know that he's in prison until he decides that it's time for us to know that he's in prison. And there are moments when the change in viewpoints from his centrality to somebody else's tributary is so tactile that the camera is pretty much floating up from his head as if in a dream and then flying over towards them. Uh, like the... Uh, Opening of season the, two. The mind awake body sleeps. Uh, oh, there's that too, but even before that, yeah. I think, yeah. And so, um, since any human's experience of time is not necessarily linear, that linearity is something we impose upon our perception of time. Elliot um, is frequently undergoing these flashbacks um, as if they are things that are happening in his life at that moment. And so he's reliving his um, his childhood window episode over and over again. But each time he's reliving it, he's discovering more and more as if, you know, this window episode is being stretched out over the course of his life. Uh, and, you know, we are even exposed to, um, you know, his flashing through the years, looking at the Mr. Robot storefront, changing faces over the course of uh, what would be over a decade. We're witnessing um, his, you know, his changing perception of his father because we've, he's put, uh, this character, Mastermind, is put into a special position in the plot line so as to specifically set things up so that we aren't, as an audience, coming to understand things, you know, over the course of when they literally took place in his life. Mm -hmm. We are coming in at the point where all is pretty much lost already. And he's starting, right. he's starting to go backwards to a point where he's reliving um, kind of a childish joy that he clearly hadn't experienced for a long, long time. And in the same way that emotionally he's returning to uh, these things and these memories that he's lost, he, our, our experience as an audience is flipping back and forth um, between the years constantly. And even the scenes in the supposedly present timeline as they are presented to us, most of the time end up happening in a sort of strange warped sequence of events um like how we are watching trenton and mobley being killed as the fbi is arriving mm -hmm. at the scene of the crime right hours and hours after their death right 
And while, um, you know, being non-chronological is a device that's used in, you know, many different predecessors up to this point, most prominently Fight Club, nobody takes it to the monstrous extreme. I don't believe so, at least. Nobody takes it to the monstrous extreme that uh, Sam Ishmael developed in Mr. Robot. Now, I'd like to bring up a little comment from from Elliot and uh, this selection. Tom Elliot. I would like to bring up a selection from an essay um, that Tom had wrote. This would be, I don't know, uh, circa 1932. I can't remember when this exact one is published because I'm taking this from the collected essays. Um, this one is from Tradition and the Individual Talent. Oh, God, that one, yes. That, that's huge. Yes, and we'll get a big, fresh take on this. this um, is, that That's massive, that yeah. one's... Because um, I believe that this is, you know, evidently foundational um, to the composition of Mr. Robot and to the way that Elliot Alderson or Mastermind experiences Elliot Alderson's life. Now, one of the facts that might come to light, uh, Tom Elliot writes, one of the facts that might come to light in this process is our tendency to insist when we praise a poet upon those aspects of his work in which he least resembles anyone else. In these aspects or parts of his work, we pretend to find in him what is individual, what is the particular essence of the man. We dwell with satisfaction upon the poet's difference from his predecessors, especially his immediate predecessors. We endeavor to find something that can be isolated in order to be enjoyed. Whereas, if we approach a poet without this prejudice, we shall often find that not only the best, but the most individual parts of his work may be those in which the dead poets, his ancestors, assert their immortality most vigorously. And I do not mean the impressionable period of adolescence, but the period of full maturity. Yet, if the only form of tradition of handing down consisted in following the ways of the immediate generation before us in a blind or timid adherence to its successes, tradition should positively be discouraged. We have seen many such simple currents soon lost in the sand, and novelty is better than repetition. See, see like a line like that, I'm sorry, I'm just going to break in really quickly and say, keep breaking in. we've seen so many currents like that lost in the sand, where he's talking about the grand tradition of literature and also of the individual artist. And then there's just a beautiful turn of phrase like that. And that is so, uh, it's always thinking in images. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and these elemental forces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while at the same time being just so uh, adept at, <clears throat> at, at the use of these words and, and the lyricism. Yeah. It's shocking. I mean, um, he has this superficial appearance of being dry. Um, but mm-hmm. especially when you compare him to um, a lot of other people at that time who were writing about the ocean and apple trees and the like, um, that he, there's a wonderful vibrancy and movement um, to his perception of everything. How there really isn't a single, you know, uh, not living thing in these worlds that he's composing. And even when he's writing his critical essays, it comes out in his comparisons of uh, Stravinsky's uh, Rite of Spring to 
the honks of car horns and uh, the uh, right. kicking of jackhammers in the street. Right, 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 where he's hearing that in there. And um, no, and it's such a great example of how T.S. Eliot, especially modern, I, I would guess if we went to people who are, don't have uh, any depth of experience like me before this with his literature, with his writing, and um, that they see him as dry. They see him as old-fashioned and dry and uh, and a conservative st- stick in the mud. It's an interesting comparison to Elliot Alderson, who we're pretty rapidly brought into his world, but if you look at what he looks like from the outside to the people around him, he's he's a security analyst tech yeah, and uh, who lives alone and doesn't go anywhere and won't show up at parties and uh, won't, won't hang out and won't do anything and doesn't have anything interesting to say, won't even participate in a conversation. Yeah. His favorite movie is... Back to the Future 2. But, but then we find out, of course, that Elliot's a, a secret hacker vigilante, that, that he is raging inside at society and the people around him, that he's hacking everyone that he knows, that he goes home and drugs himself to stay sane and then cries in the corner. That's not what you expect when you're looking at a guy in his button-down shirt sitting in the cubicle next to you. Tom Elliott writes, And novelty is better than repetition. Tradition is a matter of much wider significance. It cannot be inherited, and if you want it, you must obtain it by great labor. It involves, in the first place, the historical sense, which we may call nearly indispensable to anyone who would continue to be a poet beyond his 25th year. And the historical sense involves a perception, not only of the pastness of the past, but of its presence. The historical sense compels a man to write not merely with his own generation in his bones, but with the feeling that the whole of the literature of Europe from Homer and within it, the whole of the literature of his own country has a simultaneous existence and composes a simultaneous order. This historical sense, which is a sense of the timeless as well as of the temporal and of the timeless and of the temporal together, is what makes a writer traditional, and it is at the same time what makes a writer most acutely conscious of his place and time, of his own contemporaneity. No poet, no artist of any sort, has his complete meaning alone. His significance, his appreciation, is the appreciation of his relation to the dead poets and artists. You cannot value him alone. You must set him, for contrast and comparison, among the dead. I mean this as a principle of aesthetic, not merely historical criticism. The necessity that he shall conform, that he shall cohere, is not one-sided. What happens when a new work of art is created is something that happens simultaneously to all the works of art that which preceded it. The existing monuments form an ideal order among themselves, which is modified by the introduction of the new, the really new work of art among them. The existing order is complete before the new work arrives. For order to persist after the supervention of novelty, the whole existing order must be, if ever so slightly, altered. And so the relations, proportions, values of each work of art toward the whole are readjusted. And this is conformity between the old and the new. Whoever has approved this idea of order, of the form of European, of English literature, will not find it preposterous that the past should be altered by the present as much as the present is directed by the past, and the poet who is aware of this will be aware of great difficulties and responsibilities. Yes, and that is such an incredible thing. It is 
Um, the language is academic, especially for us now. Who I, you know, well, even then, we know what the letters look like. We know what they were, what they sounded like, speaking to each other um, in these personal letters that they're sending back and forth so often. They didn't sound like this. They weren't. They weren't speaking the way we do in a modern way, where you even have people who are academic or our favorite YouTube essayists or so on, where they give it to us in a, uh, you know, the more common vernacular. But those ideas are revolutionary. That every new important piece of art changes every piece of art that came before it, and it's something that is that is contradictory to what we think. Well, the, the past is set. The past is the past. The past doesn't change. But what Elliot was saying was that the past only exists as our memories and as our perceptions. And that when we introduce something new in the future that is now part of the entire corpus of everything that we can look at, that this new thing changes we look changes the way we look at the old things and this isn't just true of art of course it's true of our lives and the events that we experience and he put this forth in a clear and beautiful way though it's hard to understand i had to i had to look at that more than once to internalize it and to really feel it because I had such a strong idea that the past was fixed and it it took me a little while to realize that um, that the past is always changing and it opened up for me excitement about Oh, this is why Sam Esmail and and Elliot Alderson are excited about the movie Back to the Future and excited about the metaphorical ideas of that. Because it's looking at this idea that you can always change the past. You're not going back in the past. And that's mm-hmm. something that is hard for the people who enjoy sci-fi and wanted a sci-fi story out of Mr. Robot. They wanted Elliot to go back in the past and change the past, mm-hmm. you know, like Michael J. Fox does. And, um, but that wasn't, he didn't need to do that. What he needed to do was change the past by changing how he understands the present and how he views his future and all those things end up giving him a new past, even though it doesn't take away those things. All those things are still there and they still exist. He now has a new life from understanding these things. 